Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you are doing okay wherever you happen to be. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Wendy Chin Tanner, author of the debut novel, King of the Armadillos. Wild though, when I was researching the book and when, you know, I was on that first trip with my dad to Carville, which was his first time back in 53 years. But in the archive, I was looking for, you know, oral histories that I could maybe get a sense of the language and the life of young people in the 50s. And I was also looking for narratives by other Chinese Americans because in the 1950s, 15% of the population at Carville was Chinese American, which is a really high number, far larger, far, it was a far larger number than uh, Chinese Americans or even Asian Americans on the whole in the United States at large. So, you know, one would think that there would have been some documentary evidence of their experiences, and I didn't find a single one. All right, that was Wendy Chin Tanner. Her debut novel is called King of the Armadillos, available now from Flatiron Books. King of the Armadillos is a work of historical fiction set against the backdrops of 1950s New York City and Louisiana. It is about a young man named Victor Chin, who as a teenager contracts Hansen's disease, otherwise known as leprosy. In consequence, Victor has to leave his home in the Bronx the only home that he has known since immigrating from China. And in a quest for healing and survival, he ventures down to the town of Carville, Louisiana, 
which at the time was home to the only major federal medical facility in the continental United States dedicated to the treatment of Hansen's disease. King of the Armadillos is largely about Victor's experiences on the ground and on his own in Carville, where he finds himself in quarantine with other patients from all over the country and from all sorts of different backgrounds. Together, they all share the same basic plight, despite their differences, doing battle with this disease, a disease that historically has been maligned and misunderstood and misconstrued. And so in this novel, we get to bear witness to Victor's growth and his relationships with his teachers and his doctors and his fellow patients at Carville. I should mention that King of the Armadillos is inspired by Wendy Chin Tanner's own family history, as you will hear us discuss. Her father, much like Victor, was afflicted with Hansen's disease as a teenager, and this book is based on his real-life experiences as a young patient at Carville. I should also add, in a kind of unbelievable twist, that my mother's maiden name is Carville, and her family, my family, hails from this very place, this very town in Louisiana, which is named after one of my relatives distant relatives. So you can imagine how interesting Wendy's novel is for me to get to read about Carville and this treatment center, which I grew up hearing about, Uh, though I, I must say I have never been there. My mother grew up in a town just up the river from Carville, and that is where I would go for holidays when I was a kid. But this place and this treatment center was definitely a part of my family's history and its internal folklore. So to get to see it rendered like this in a work of contemporary historical fiction is a real treat for me. And I had a great time talking with Wendy Chin Tanner, who, in yet another twist, I have known for many years. She was once the poetry editor at The Nervous Breakdown, my uh, online literary magazine of yore. So it is great to see Wendy making this fine debut and my conversation with her is coming up in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack, bradlisty.substack.com. That's where the newsletter lives. It's pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show on a weekly basis. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you love this show, if you are in the holiday spirit and you want to join the Other People Patreon community, that would be ideal. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different levels of support. You can get merchandise, a coffee mug, a tote bag, a t-shirt, a book club subscription. Check it out over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the debut novel, The Liberators by E.J. Coe, spanning two continents and four generations. The Liberators exquisitely captures two Korean families forever changed by fateful decisions made in love 
and War. This is an extraordinarily beautiful and deeply moving novel, an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. That's The Liberators, the debut novel by E.J. Coe, available from Tin House. Okay, so my guest once again is Wendy Chin Tanner. Her debut novel is called King of the Armadillos, available now from Flatiron Books. Wendy's other books include the poetry collection entitled Turn, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award, and another poetry collection entitled Anyone Will Tell You. Wendy is the editor of Embodied, an intersectional feminist comics poetry anthology. She is co-author of the graphic novel entitled American Terrorist, and she is the co-founder of A Wave Blue World, an independent publishing company for graphic novels. Her poems and essays have been featured in a variety of journals and publications, including The Rumpus, The Kenyan Review, LitHub, and Dame Magazine. Wendy Chin Tanner was a founding editor at Kin Poetry Journal. She was, as I mentioned, a poetry editor for The Nervous Breakdown for over a decade and has also been a staff interviewer at Lantern Review. So I think that does it. Let's get to today's conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Wendy Chin Tanner, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called King of the Armadillos. In my dad's family, my grandfather, his father, came to the States first in the 1930s, and he served in the military, in the U.S. military, in the army, and then he opened a Chinese laundry, a Chinese hand laundry in the Bronx. And uh, in the late 1940s, he was thus able to bring my dad and his older brother over from China to live with him in the Bronx. And uh, so my dad was about eight or nine. And when he was 16, he was diagnosed with leprosy, Hansen's disease, otherwise known as leprosy. And he was sent to the Federal Institution for the Treatment of Leprosy in Carville, Louisiana. That was the only one that was stateside. The other one was in Molokai in Hawaii. So he was sent to Louisiana, partly for financial reasons, but also partly for st- reasons of stigma. The disease is so terribly stigmatized as it still is today, which is amazing considering how easily it's treated and how non-communicable it is. 95% of the human population is naturally immune. So um, he was there from the age of 16 in 1954 until 1963, which is far longer than my character, Victor. But uh, it was a very formative time for him. And I, I think it very much shaped the person he became. It almost functions in a way because Carville at its peak, which is when your father was there at mid-century, was what, 500 patients? Something yes. like that. This was yeah. not a small operation. This was a big operation that functioned in essence as a kind of community. And I mean, this is kind of a loose comparison, but it's almost like a boarding school in a Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was my first impression of it when I went there for the first time, which was that it felt more like a prep school or like a liberal arts college than like a leprosarium or an institution. 
It's laid out very much like a prep school or a college. It's incredibly beautiful. It's on the banks of the Mississippi and it's, you know, 450 acres and it's, uh, you know, incredibly verdant and beautifully landscaped. And you have these Victorian buildings. It was a sugar plantation. So the plantation house, the, the big house is still there. So it's uh, it, it has this incredible beauty to it. Live oaks that are couple of hundred years old with Spanish moss, uh, pecan trees. I actually pick, uh, gathered a whole bunch of pecans because it's it was pecan season last month when I was in Louisiana and I gathered a whole bunch to bring back to my dad. They're in my kitchen right now, actually. Yeah, but it's, it's an astonishingly, hauntingly beautiful place. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it does seem like a prep school, prep school. And it was also a really radical and progressive place especially in the 1950s, and a really um, astonishing place for the fact that it was almost like a microcosm of America. There were people there from all walks of life, from all over the country. You, you know, you had people who were um, illiterate, and you had people who had been socialites. So you have this incredible mix, not just of um, different ethnicities, but you have a mix of different classes as well. Right. Well, that's the thing about a disease is that it has a kind of flattening effect when it comes to those sorts of hierarchies because it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't just pick on people from lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. So from you, you say how radical it was, particularly in light of its time, it was also really radical in light of its place because I guess now is as good a time as any to let listeners in on the big reveal, which is that my mother's maiden name is Carville. That is part of my family line, and that is the place from which my matrilineal line hails, that little town on the banks of the Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a total weird synchronicity yeah. that made me definitely want to talk to you about this book because it speaks to my own personal history. I never spent much time in Carville per se, but I was always told about what my family referred to as the leprosorium because that is the distinguishing characteristic of that town, right? It's not it's not a big place. I mean, the the treatment center there is sort of the main event, right? Unless yeah, it's absolutely. been unless something else is there now. <laughs> well, I mean, now it's uh, occupied mostly by the National Guard, which is interesting cuz the last time I was there, I had to get clearance to shoot video on my iPhone. So I had to email like six different people to get security clearance. So it's used mostly by the National Guard. There is a museum there, which is beautifully curated by, um, really single-handedly by a woman named Elizabeth Schecksneider, who has become almost like a family member. You know, she helped me so much with this book. Yeah. And that's, that's basically what's there now because all of the last patients have passed on the people who had lived there. And before they passed, they had already moved to Baton Rouge to like a a nursing home type situation and the research institute also moved to baton rouge so okay so you talk about how hansen's disease is not super communicable because 95 percent of human beings have a natural immunity to it so five percent of the population is susceptible your dad was one of them he gets sick can you just talk about the need for a place like carville there is such a stigma attached to leprosy slash Hansen's disease. Certain cultures believe it's a kind of curse from the gods or proof that you were horrible in a past life or punishment for something or other, sexual deviance, that kind of thing. But if the disease is not communicable, why the need for 
like this isolated community and this kind of separation from the rest of society? I mean, it wasn't for scientific reasons. It was for political reasons to assuage the um, incredible fear and panic that leprosy seems to cause among the public. It's also a testament, actually, like on the plus side, it's a testament to uh, federally funded medicine, right? Because some of the treatment, for example, uh, the surgeries that were done there to repair nerve damage, which my dad also benefited from, those would have been incredibly expensive, you know, in a regular hospital, which was another reason that my grandfather chose to send my dad and, you know, that my dad also acquiesced to going. But in terms of the need for the place, maybe in in a way, it was to protect the patients, you know, because there was so much stigma. And, you, you know, we say the word stigma, and it seems it seems like just a word, you know, but really what it was, was people would be afraid to touch you, disgusted by you, you couldn't get a job, you couldn't get married, you couldn't, you know, navigate society at all. So in a sense, a place like that afforded sufferers a life, you know, a productive, functional life. And for people like my dad, who had come from essentially poverty, it afforded them a kind of education that they would not have been able to access. You know, my dad would not have been able to have the piano lessons, the voice lessons, the composition lessons that he got for free at Carville had he stayed in the Bronx. That's right. That's right. So it's like, it's a weird, it's like this weird combination of twists of fate, right? It's like both positive and negative. It has this, I think maybe ultimately positive, if you had to net it out and you can feel free to disagree, but it seems like the strength that your dad and the character in the book, Victor had to develop through these experiences and the relationships made and the education received maybe outweighed some of the negatives? Like, what's your take on that? And maybe what's your, I'm curious to know what your dad's take is on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so subjective, just like everything is, you know, there's, uh, you can parse out the objective facts, but the lived experience of people who were there, I, I think it's very, very diverse. My dad's take on it was that it was great for him, that it was, you know, apart from being so ill and suffering physically, it was an incredible experience. And it was not only what gave him uh, music, which he still loves and he still plays the piano every day. But ap- apart from that, I think it um, really forged his sense of being an American and being a, being a citizen and being very politically active. That was what was remarkable at that time in the 1950s. You know, my dad got there in 1954, which was right when Dr. Johansson, who had been the medical officer in charge, essentially the director of the whole shebang, he was very beloved and he had retired. And um, in fact, like the lake, Lake Johansson was named after him. He'd had it built for the patients. So he was very beloved because he had a very sort of communitarian sense of what he wanted the institution to be like. And he, you know, was based on science. He was a proponent of patients essentially doing what they wanted. And he would give passes to them to uh, take 
breaks, to go home, vacations, etc., because there was no reason for them not to. He was lenient, as it were. But in 1953, the year before my dad got there, he retired and a new guy came in, Dr. Gordon, who was the opposite. He reinstituted these really draconian rules. He tried to get patients to, for example, only wear hospital clothes. He cracked down on dancing, dating, uh, people being able to cook in their own homes. He wanted to take away the uh, cottages where married people lived. You know, all, all sorts of very obnoxious things that the patients railed against. By that time, however, there had been formed a patients' federation, which was, you know, a very powerful community of, of people who had leverage. And that leverage came from the magazine, the Star magazine that was written and published at Carville by Carville patients. And also because the de facto leader of this patients' federation, Stanley Stein, who in the book is Herb Klein, he had connections. He was incredibly well-connected, not just politically and in the publishing world and in the you know news world, but he was also connected to Hollywood folks. He was a closeted gay man who, in spite of the fact that he was heavily disabled, you know, he was blind, he couldn't even read Braille because his fingers had become desensitized from the disease. He couldn't walk without a cane. He eventually wound up in a wheelchair, but he was so charming and so charismatic that he became pen pals initially with several Hollywood stars, including Tallulah Bankhead. And eventually they became legitimately very, very close friends. So he got all these Hollywood people, including Marlon Brando, to, to fight for, help fight for the cause, to you know restore dignity essentially to the patients at Carville. So Dr. Gordon was the target, I suppose, at that time of the Patients' Federation. They wanted to do something about him. They wanted to get him out, essentially. So in addition to leveraging their political power um, through the star, they also had strikes, they had sit-ins, they um, had protest marches. And, you know, you can imagine my dad as like a 16, 17-year-old kid being very excited by this. Um, And uh, he heavily participated and he was uh, one of Stanley's readers. So everything had to be read to him out loud because he couldn't read Braille, right? Um, So eventually... After three years, the Patients' Federation hired a lawyer, sent him to the Hill, also got a local congressman on their side to speak on their behalf. And after three years, they kicked him out. If you can imagine, in 1957, they were able to get the medical officer in charge out, which is remarkable if you think about it. I mean, a group of lepers. Yeah. So I I, I think this was a formative experience for my dad. I was going to say, like that's that's got to be such a crucial part of the education that he received while he was there, and such an, a unique kind of education to receive anywhere, but in particular in South Louisiana in the mid twentieth century. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and I will add that um, Carville was integrated at a time when you know Louisiana and the South was segregated. Right, right. Yeah. So, and like the racial politics of that time and the way that you depict them in the book are fascinating because there is, I think, an openness and an acceptance, an acceptance and an integration happening within the walls at Carville that was unique, but there's also still like racism and racial bias that 
kind of comes to the fore at times. It's not it's not a perfect picture by any stretch. Certainly. Not utopian, but I would say that it, it was an argument for solidarity. I think and like coalitionism. I think the achievement there was that people from very diverse backgrounds and very diverse ideologies were able to come together for the common good. You know, they had a single fight that they were going to fight together. So, you know, perhaps we can learn something from that. I was going to say, it's like maybe that's the key to have one thing in common that you all really feel good about and passionate about and the rest of the rest of it can kind of I don't know, recede if if you have something to sort of center yourselves around. <laughs> Having a common enemy perhaps is that, maybe uh, that's it. One of the linchpins, right? <laughs> well, I got to say too, I was thinking about this as you were describing it earlier that Something that's troubled me about the South, I think this is changing, especially in recent years, but you know, the post-Civil War South and the existence of these plantations and the way that some of them have become kind of tourist destinations and even places where there are things like brunch and like proms and stuff. I don't know if there's proms. And weddings. Weddings. weddings that's popular. Like, yeah, like plant, plantation weddings. That's really gross. And I feel relieved that a plantation house in a town that has some connection to my family uh, was turned into this uh, leprosorium or into this healing place and into this kind of radical place of integration and, I don't know, political activism. Because that feels, if you're going to do anything other than level uh, a plantation or make it into a kind of unsettling historical site or something where you have to really face the the truth of the place, which some of them are becoming. I can't think of too many things that, that are better than to turn it into a federally funded hospital. Right, right. right. But I, nonetheless, nonetheless, there was a barbed wire fence surrounding it. So it continued to be a place where people were incarcerated and right. where they lost their agency and where they had to fight for it. right. Yeah, so it's complicated. Yeah. And before we go any further, too, I want to make sure that we understand the implications of Hansen's disease because it's it's very rare and it's not something that I think is in the public consciousness too much. And I think if people have any idea of what Hansen's disease entails, it's kind of a crude understanding or some like abstract idea of like sores on the skin or, you know, like limbs falling off and things like that. You know, there's those kinds of things that I think you pick up in bits and pieces if you're, you know, I'm Generation X. That that was kind of my... I'm Gen X too. Yeah. So you pick these things up and and to be like sort of, uh, I don't know, it's like sort of gross to think back. There were like leper jokes. Like I remember, do you remember Blanche Knott's truly tasteless joke books? I don't know if you remember those. They used to sell them at Spencer Gifts. And so you can imagine like me as like a junior high boy. I remember those were like popular, all the boys, because they're just kind of gross jokes, but some of them were really inappropriate and would never fly today. And I remember there being in those books, jokes about leprosy, which, Mm, you know, those would not fly today. So but just so people are are clear on what your father faced and what other patients at Carville faced, can we just talk about what Hansen's disease entails symptomatically? Yeah, what it actually is. Yeah, yeah so it's a bacteria. 
which is quite similar to tuberculosis, actually. And it's very easily treated, as I said, with antibiotics, which were invented at Carville, which, which were discovered at Carville in 1941. So while it's very easily treatable without treatment, it can quite severely and systemically damage the body. It's a disease of the nerves as well as of the skin. So in the, in the Bible, the Leviticus 13 bit of the Bible that really like is in service of the stigma around leprosy. That's the bit that says, you know, unclean, unclean, etc. There's a conflation actually of a lot of different skin diseases. Um, so, you know, medical historians have generally all decided that leprosy in the Bible is not what actual medical leprosy is. So um, that's part of the distinction, I think, of calling it Hansen's disease as well. So what can happen is sores. That's one of the first things that happens, but it can affect the nerves and the extremities, especially. So the hands and the feet um, and the fingers, the ears, the cartilage and the nose. And since it can become systemic, it can affect the lungs. It can affect the eyes. You know, Stanley Stein was blinded as a result of that. Yeah, so it, it can do a lot of damage, but limbs do not fall off. What happens quite often, actually, is that because of insensitivity, people will get injured, and then it becomes infected, and they wind up having to have uh, fingers or toes amputated. So what I want to ask you about is the, the fact of your interest in writing a book about this place and this time and this illness and to process your father's story in a book because there is i think in his memory of it and in his own kind of memory of himself there's a mythological quality to the time that he spent there was such a pivotal time in his life and so the way that these things work i think and oftentimes in families is that these stories get handed down and you grew up hearing about this place right and so then that mythology kind of becomes part of your own yes. narrative. And it's a big experience and such a pivotal one for your family and for your life. And so I want to hear about that part of it, mm-hmm. kind of learning about your father's story and then sort of a, feeling it as your own and then getting to the point where it was so important to you that you knew that you needed to write about it. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember a time when I didn't know about it. I'm an only child, and my dad is a chatty guy, and I was a very curious kid, and I'm still a curious adult. So I asked a lot of questions, asked a lot of follow-up questions whenever he would bring up this place where he spent all these years. You know, his best stories were always about Carville, and you're right about the mythologization of the place and the experience. It felt mythological to me. It felt magical, you know, like... uh, Oz or Narnia, but um, there's a term in psychoanalysis called anamoya, which is the longing or nostalgia for a place that you've never been. So I absolutely had that about Carville, which is why whenever I go, and I've been there twice now, it, it very much feels like a homecoming in a strange way. Although I suppose it's not strange at all, given the fact that in such an isolated place, there was a culture that was specific to Carville. And that is the culture from which my dad parented me. 
you know. Right. So I, I have and, a sort and, of... And mm. I got to say, parented you in Brooklyn, right? You were not raised yes. in Louisiana. So no. your childhood was very much removed geographically from Carville, but culturally, it found its way into the way that your dad raised you. Absolutely. And we had all these artifacts at my house from Carville. You know, for example, we have a Bible that is in the in the church in Union Chapel at Carville. Even today, there's a stack of them. Um, I saw them a few weeks ago. And, you know, my father took piano lessons and composition lessons and voice lessons when he was at Carville, like my character, Victor. And he took all of his uh, music books with him. So we have all of his music books from Carville with the notes that his teacher wrote in the margins. And some of those books were the ones that he taught me piano with when I was a child. So there's this continuity. We actually almost have, I think we do have more things from Carville than we do from China. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's very much of a sense of lineage, I think, and kinship among people who uh, are connected to the place. You know, on my first visit there, there aren't too many people left who know about the old days, right? And on my first visit there, I happened to uh, have lunch. There's still a cafeteria that's that's uh, that serves lunch there. Had a great gumbo, actually. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, my dad and I went and had lunch there because I was poking around in the archives and he was doing a three hour long oral history, which, you know, God help the person who transcribed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we sat down and there was uh, a man who was about my age. Um, his name was Anthony Sanchez Jr. And he happened to be uh, one of the groundsmen, you know, one of the maintenance people at Carville. And his father had been a maintenance man at Carville. And his grandfather had also been a maintenance man at Carville. So he grew up around Carville, around that mythology, although for him, it was day-to-day -day life. He grew up around patients. You know, he still remembers when patients lived there and he knew a number of them. So, you know, it was very normalized for him. But I think the fact that, you know, he was surrounded by these people from all over the country gave him a really big inner world in spite of the fact that I don't think he's ever left the area, you know? And as, as we were talking, it felt like I was talking to, you know, a distant cousin or something, you know, there's definitely something about proximity to that community at that time that um, trickles down into the way people think and feel and inhabit the world. So yeah, I mean, this, that's an interesting question to pose is, I suppose your father does have some kind of Southern vibe after spending part, you know what I'm saying? Like, I guess so, yeah. I, I mean, you know, some of it got yeah, in so, there. Certain idioms, certainly. But, and, you know, when he's around people from the South, he'll slip into, you know, a little bit of a, maybe it's like a mirroring of the accent a little bit. And... I, I think the thing that he took away from Carville first and foremost was music, of course. But apart from that, it was that, you know, political activism and that, um, you know, he's not afraid of institutions. He's not afraid of using the system. You know, he loves a good lawsuit. 
<laughs> he's not afraid to go out and protest. You know, after he left Carville, he wanted to join the Peace Corps, but of course they get your medical records. So, you know, he couldn't join the Peace Corps, but he joined VISTA, which is essentially the domestic Peace Corps. And he protested Vietnam. He marched for civil rights. He marched with me, you know, against Iraq twice. You know, he was down at Occupy Wall Street, much to my mother's chagrin. You know, so I think this is very Carvillian in that sense, you know, from that experience of kicking out Dr. Gordon, I think he learned that on a grassroots level, if you get together and you fight hard enough, you can make shit happen. I love that. That makes me happy that that's part of the legacy of that place. Mm. That's super cool, you know, super cool and uh, inspiring. And and how cool for you to have a father who had that set of experiences and who carried it forward and kind of taught you. I think it's valuable to have some recognition of your own power politically when it comes to things like social justice. Something that was wild, though, when I was researching the book and when, you know, I was on that first trip with my dad to Carville, which was his uh, first time back in 53 years. But in the archive, I was looking for, you know, oral histories that I could maybe get a sense of the language and the life of young people in the 50s. And I was also looking for narratives by other Chinese Americans, because in the 1950s, 15% of the population at Carville was Chinese American, which is a really high number, far larger, it was a far larger number than uh, Chinese Americans or even Asian Americans on the whole in the United States at large. So, you know, one would think that there would have been some documentary evidence of their experiences. And I didn't find a single one. I couldn't find a single firsthand narrative by a Chinese American. So, I don't know what the reason for that is. I don't know if they just, you know, didn't want to participate or if it was institutional neglect or if it was something more nefarious. Don't know. But the fact remains that there was a hole in the historical record. And uh, that made me feel even more like I needed to tell the story and to fill that. Okay. So I read that you initially thought you might write a work of nonfiction. Or there was some question around what form the book would take. And I read that Lydia Yuknovich, a past guest on this program, uh, and a terrific author, had some impact on you in terms of getting you to the desk to write this thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very resistant to the idea of writing fiction. Before I wrote this book, I'd never even written a short story before. You know, I was primarily a poet in terms of the creative writing world. I have two poetry collections but before this novel. I also worked in comics or, and still do. My husband and I have a small press that publishes graphic novels, uh, socially conscious graphic novels. So, you know, we've been doing that for 18 years. It's part of my background too. And my academic background is in sociology. So, you know, I knew how to write a poem. I know how to make a comic. I know how to write a sociology paper, but I had no idea how to write a novel. And I didn't, for some reason, I had like a psychological barrier, I guess, around thinking that I had the chops to do so. It seemed very complex to me. And also because of the biographical and historical material, I thought that it kind of made the most sense to go at it as creative nonfiction, perhaps, even though that in itself was daunting too. 
but I went to a conference in Portland when I first moved there. And Lydia Yoknovich was there and I listened to her talk about her latest book and uh, stood in line to see her. And I sort of, you know, in that way that Lydia has this very disarming way, I um, started out talking really normally and then started blurting out my whole life story. <laughs> Part of which was to, you know, tell her about this story that my dad had very recently given me permission to write. And I was uh, telling her that I didn't know what to do with it. You know, that essentially I felt like I had bitten off more than I could chew, that I had too much material as well, because, you know, my dad helped me get all of this archival stuff from the museum. I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents, medical records, photographs, all of this stuff. And I, I didn't know how to organize it. I didn't know what the story would be, if that makes sense. I knew where it was going to be set. I knew when it was going to be set. I knew it was going to, you know, focus on either my dad as an, as, as an actual person or as on a character that was very much based on my dad. I knew that, but I didn't know what would happen in the book. Right. So I asked her, you know, what do you think I should do? <laughs> and she told me that the story would tell me what it needed to be and that I was the only person who could write it and that I had to listen to the story. And that's what I did. And, you know, with a lot of kicking and screaming <laughs> and with a lot of, you know, continued resistance for two or three years, I would say hitting a lot of roadblocks in my attempts at creative nonfiction and also kind of, you know, spinning out into, you know, side stories and, and areas where I didn't actually have any documentary evidence. You know, my imagination kind of took over around some of the side characters, in particular, the Sam and Ruth story. You know, there's, there's a romance between, um, my character Victor's father and a Jewish woman who lives across the street from his laundry in the Bronx. And I didn't know anything about that. My, I knew that my grandfather had a relationship with a woman who wasn't my grandmother when he was separated from her for, you know, over a decade in the States, but I didn't know anything else about her. I just, you know, I'd heard whispers about her existence, but for some reason that story compelled me so much. The idea of, you know, what could bring two people like this together and keep them together for years? You know, what could be the components of that, of that relationship, that Imago connection probably. And I started to write these scenes about them and they were really alive in a way that the stuff that I was writing at Carville initially wasn't, you know, I think it was just bogged down by, you know, this kind of preoccupation with authenticity and this preoccupation with needing to get the details exactly right, which I, I still did, you know, try as hard as possible in, in the fiction in, in this novel. But um, at, especially initially, I was, I was really kind of crushed by the weight of that. Um, and also, I found it really difficult to 
have the creative freedom that I needed, I think, to make those scenes really alive with my dad kind of breathing down my neck, <laughs> essentially, right? So I would show him passages um, and he would be really helpful in terms of uh, helping me root out like historical inaccuracies, anachronisms, stuff like that. But he would also kind of correct any narrative or um, or a perception that didn't match his own, you know, that didn't match his own recollection. So there was this, there was this idea, I guess, that I, um, that I needed for my dad to approve of it essentially. And, and that was, that, that was a problem. That's, that's a huge issue creatively. Right. And yeah. the only way I could figure out eventually how to deal with that issue was to make it fiction. The other thing was the music in the book. You know, I'm not a musician and I couldn't find a way to research out of that, you know, if I was going to make my main character a musician. So the only way that I could get into that area of the novel was to do a writing exercise where I tapped into my own experience as a young poet, I guess, you know, when I discovered poetry as a teenager, what that felt like in my body, how I heard the music of the words. And I sort of transposed that into my character's experience of music. And it worked, you know, suddenly those bits of Victor's personality and character became really alive, uh, whereas before they were quite flat. So that also told me that I needed to just like dive off the cliff into the ocean of fiction. So you mentioned earlier that your father had given you permission mm-hmm. to write about it. That this suggests that previously he did not give you his permission and you had asked. So I'm just curious about what changed. Well, I hadn't actually asked because I never intended to write a book about this. It seemed like it, it just never occurred to me as something that he might ever want or that anyone would ever want to read, frankly. The fact that he was at Carville, the fact that he'd had Hansen's disease was a taboo. Like it was a taboo subject to speak of it outside of our home. You know, it was very normal inside. My mother didn't like to talk about it, but he and I would talk about it frequently. But I knew enough to know that, you know, I couldn't even talk about it to other family members. And, uh, to, I think it was such a secret that my grandparents didn't even tell some of my dad's siblings. My dad comes from a very large family, actually. So he has several siblings who were left behind in China when he and his brother came to the States. And he has several who were born in the States. And none of them, apart from his older brother who was in the States with him at the time, knew that he was at Carville or that he had had leprosy my aunts and uncles thought that he was in the deep South for nine years because he had asthma, (laughs) which, you know, is nuts because also the deep South was really bad for his asthma first and foremost. But, um, you know, the fact that they didn't question that narrative is really interesting. And uh, it speaks to the power of denial, I think, and the power of suggestion. Um, Yeah. But the permission element came from, my dad's uh, recovery from yet another illness. Uh, He had cancer in uh, 2012 
into 2013 and he's fully recovered and you know like the sort of enmeshed only child <laughs> that I am I brought him to my house and to to live with me during his treatment took him to every single appointment etc cetera, etc cetera. so we were at his exit appointment with his surgeon and my dad was talking to him about uh, Hansen's disease and also about Carville. And we discovered that his surgeon had never heard about it before. Never heard about Carville. He thought leprosy had been eradicated. Like it, it just like wasn't in his consciousness. And so, you know, my dad and I walked out of that appointment thinking, well, okay, so this might actually be a really important piece of medical history, if not American history, that people don't know about, and maybe it's important. And I think in talking to his doctors about it too, some of that taboo was lifted already. But I think based on that appointment, discovering that even a medical practitioner didn't know about this, you know, really significant piece of history, that changed his view. And, um, and he said, you know, if, if you want to write about this, you can. And then he helped me get all of that documentary archival stuff. So what is the current state of Hansen's disease in the world? It has not been eradicated. It still exists? Yeah, it does still exist, actually, um, particularly in the global south. So it's, it's kind of still somewhat of a problem in India. One of the real issues is that there's still so much stigma around, uh, around leprosy that people don't go for treatment until it becomes quite severe. And so the more severe it is, the harder it is to treat. I was actually in conversation with the director of the Hansen's Clinic in Washington, connected to the University of Washington. And he was saying that that was still an issue too, even in the States where people would not come forward for treatment. So, you know, a, a surprising thing that's come out of this book is a kind of education and outreach component that I didn't think uh, was in my lane, actually. But it's it seems that people are, are wanting me to talk about it because there's still so many misconceptions, I think, around Hansen's. And I think that part of the power of fiction is the ability to um, allow the reader to inhabit the interiority of characters, right? And that making forcing a reader to inhabit the interiority of lepers, you know, is, is incredibly humanizing, right? It creates that identification. Well, yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's something that the book does really well. And I think in particular, because of the diversity of the place and the radical nature of the place, the integrated nature of the place in its time to inhabit, not just the Victor character, but a variety of characters from all these different backgrounds really brings that element of Carville to life in ways that a nonfiction account would probably have a much harder time doing. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. You know, I feel like unless like, I guess, unless you have access to historical records and firsthand accounts that are really robust, but like you said earlier, well, at least when it came mm -hmm. to Asian American residents at Carville, there wasn't much, right? Right. That's right. I was able to find some oral histories uh, given by people who were young at the time, like in the mid-50s, a, a handful. 
And some of them were relatively robust, but they were just kind of, you know, anecdotes about what they would get up to, right? So I guess not robust enough to uh, do a legitimate history or, uh, you know, a legitimate piece of nonfiction around them. So that's, that's a very good point. The ability to imagine oneself as a writer into these characters is, is, is one of the great things about fiction that I hadn't been able to access before in any other genre. Well, and it also makes it more fun. I mean, you talk about struggling to, to write a nonfiction version of this book and feeling the weight of responsibility, this need to be authentic and to do justice to your father and his story and to this place and these people. I mean, I can imagine how I could easily psych myself out and I think that there has to be an element of play and fun, and this can happen in fiction or non, you know, it's not like it's exclusive to fiction, but the point is that in the, in the absence of that element, it's hard to sustain one's energies over the course of time that it takes to write a book, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if going to the keyboard every day is just like, oh boy, here we go. The weight of history is on my shoulders. Like that's a tough slog, right? <laughs> but yeah. if you're going and you're interested in the story that you're telling and you're having some fun creating these characters and there's an element of mystery in terms of what is going to happen because you have that level of freedom, it just makes a creative sense to me that that worked while the other right. version didn't. Right, right. I guess I could have written a poetry collection about it, but it didn't come to me, you know, like, I feel like my muse is a bit of a feral cat, you know, it comes and goes as it pleases. And, you know, it, it comes in many different forms as well. You know, I work in multiple genres, and I don't really choose what project is coming to me at any given time. In fact, after I began writing this book, my second poetry collection interrupted it. So, you know, I went with that. <laughs> feral cat showed up. I like that metaphor. Uh, did your dad go to LSU? No, no, he didn't. He went back to New York. Oh, he did. So, okay. um, yeah, yeah. So he went to pace. Okay. I was going to say, cause like I'm trying to place him in time. What year was he born? 1937. Okay. So he's like a few years older than my parents, but they would have been. I think if he'd stayed, he would have possibly gone to LSU. And he left Carville at six in sixty three. Yes, so he would have been twenty five when he left, and I I think by that point he felt like he was too old for college. You know, first of all, so he took some courses at Pace, but he didn't finish. But you know, he also had a home to go back to. Right, right. a lot of his peers didn't. A lot of his peers were so estranged from their families that uh, not only did they you know, not have a place to go after they were discharged, but they had also assumed different names, right? Like the majority of people, when they enter Carville, they pick a different name, but my dad never did, which is interesting. That kind of says something about who he is as a person as well. I think he's got a bit of oppositional energy to him. I like your dad. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a good, Me too. Sounds, like, sounds like good people. So that's so strange to think that my parents were, you know, my mother especially grew up just like a few miles away. Yeah, that's from, crazy. She was, she was right down the road while all of this was happening. Uh, and after spending all this time writing this book, I imagine, you know, you have your dad's blessing to write the story. I have to believe he's very proud of you and very proud of the book. Yeah. But in terms of like this mytho mythological 
component to it and the way that you sort of carry this narrative with you through your childhood and through this dialogue with your father where he's telling you stories. It's this place as a kind of outsized spot in your imagination and it has all of this mystery and mythology to it. I'm curious to know what your relationship is to Carville and to this part of your family history now that you've gone through the process of writing a novel about it. Like, did it shrink it? Like, did it, did you scratch the itch? You know, like, how did it, how does it, how do you relate to it now? I think I've integrated it. You know, it, it used to be this kind of, well, a secret first and foremost, but also just, you know, something that was disconnected from the rest of my life. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the book is about dissociation and, you know, how people navigate that and the relationship between trauma and dissociation and how to re- reintegrate oneself. So I think in many ways, Carville, the history of uh, my family at Carville was dissociated from the rest of our life. And I think now it's been reintegrated. My father, I think, really enjoyed the novel version of this book far more than uh, any sort of nonfiction. I think it allowed him to just relax into it. And um, yeah, so that, that would be the result. Yeah. You both needed just a little bit of creative distance. That distance is key, you know, like to have, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like maybe reading a nonfiction account of a time like that in your life I guess it could be interesting, but I can see how it would be more fun to read the novelized version. <laughs> mm. do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's counterintuitive, though, because, you know, in order to to get close to it again, you have to create that distance, right? So, right. you know, this right. kind of duality. Well, I want to I, I shift gears and I want to talk to you biographically about yourself, like uh, separate <laughs> from this mythological component. I'm always curious to know about the way that people come up as writers and like what leads them down Mm. this path. And I know from poking around a little bit that you were, you know, you were raised in Brooklyn. Uh, You're an only child and grew up kind of working class and you're the first person in your family to go to college. So I guess my question, my question about LSU was, uh, you know, it was needless, but you went to college and this is where you kind of got the poetry bug. Is this right? I got the poetry bug earlier. Actually, I got the poetry bug in high school. I was fortunate enough to uh, to go to like an arts high school in Brooklyn, um, where there was a really strong program around creative writing in addition to visual arts, etc. So, you know, I discovered poetry as a pretty young person and started to published pretty early, actually. So I won a couple of awards in high school. I uh, won the Scholastic National Award for writing, which I recently discovered now gives a $10,000 prize. That was not the case back then. (laughs) It was just like a lunch. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and, and other couple of awards too. So that kind of gave me a misconception, I think, about what the industry was like and uh, the, how, how, difficult or easy it actually was to enter it. I went to college, then I had to, I had to talk about distance, I had to cross the ocean to feel comfortable. I think in college, I went to uh, Cambridge University in the UK. 
And I continued to write there. And in my senior year, I published a poem in the Maze Anthology, the Maze Anthology of Oxford and Cambridge, which is a literary journal that a lot of London agents will scout from. They look for new talent there. So um, by that point, I knew that poetry didn't make any money. So I wasn't expecting anything, Um, but I went to the launch party, did a reading with the rest of my peers, And sure enough, I was actually approached by an agent, which uh, blew my mind. And I was, I I was thrilled, you know, of course I would be, I was 22. I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And I, I was just so happy to be chosen that I had no idea that I had a choice to make too, right? Like the general wisdom is never go with the first guy that asks. And um, I totally did. I didn't know that I had the right to shop around. I didn't know that uh, fit was important. I kind of treated him like a professor, I guess, rather than the business partner that he was supposed to be. He, of course, said, you know, if you're going to work with me, we're not doing poetry. Can't, Can't sell that. So you can either try your hand at fiction or screenwriting. And I had done a lot of theater in college. I'd also made a few student films and I'd worked as a production assistant in the summers in New York on a couple of movies. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try screenplay. So I came up with a screenplay, um, also a period piece actually set in the 1970s in New York city about a Chinese American photographer, a man. And that agent said, oh, well, this, this is unsellable. You know, uh, I don't think, and this is the late nineties, you know, I, I don't think anyone will be able to connect with that character, you know, and I, you know, I knew this for the, for the subtle racism that it was, or maybe not so subtle. Maybe he was right though. I don't know. In terms of the market, the market certainly was as racist then as it is now. And uh, certainly more so, I guess, in the 1990s. So, you know, he said, okay, you can either revise the script or you can write me something else that I can actually sell. And I took this in such a way that, you know, I, I thought, okay, I guess this means I'm not cut out for this business. I guess, you know, that that was a mistake. And, you know, I never called him again. I didn't try to write another screenplay. I just turned around and went back to grad school. I was fortunate enough to have uh, done well enough to, you know, go back to Cambridge for grad school. I didn't even go back to the English department because I was so ashamed of myself. I was really humiliated by this experience. You know, I internalized it as a personal failure. Um, and, you know, I didn't want my professors to, to know that I'd crashed and burned, you know. So I went to the sociology department instead, which is next door to the English department. Um, and I stayed in academia for like over a decade. And, you know, didn't write another word creatively uh, until my older daughter was born in 2007. That's what cracked it? Yes. Yeah, there was, I think there was something about that really, you know, trippy time when you first become a parent, you know, it's such an intense physical experience. You know, I didn't sleep. My, my daughter was really colicky and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing as a new parent. And so I didn't sleep for months and months. And there was something about that. I think that, you know, allowed my subconscious to, 
bubble up and uh, take take over to an extent. I'd also started a meditation practice. Maybe that helped as well. But, you know, all of a sudden I started dreaming really, really uh, vividly. And I started to hear the music of the words a little bit, although I didn't I didn't know what it was at the time. I didn't recognize it at the time, but I just started to scribble down, you know, bits and pieces of what I was thinking about, what I was hearing in my head, thinking, okay, I just want to keep a record of what was going on, what I was thinking about when my daughter was born. Eventually, I took these bits and pieces and typed them up onto a Word document, and they kind of looked like poems or bits of poems. I started tinkering with them. I'm surprised I didn't freak out, but I think the stakes were so low by that point that, you know, it, it didn't matter anymore. And so much time had passed and I had no expectations around what would happen from them. But, you know, I messed around with, with these bits and pieces and eventually they became the poems that went into my first poetry collection, uh, Turn, which didn't have, you know, an easy time getting published. It was actually rejected more than 50 times before it found a publisher but then that collection was a finalist for the Oregon Book Awards. So I guess it wasn't so bad after all. But, right. uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things that, you know, you helped me do as the uh, founding editor at The Nervous Breakdown was, you know, take me on as a poetry editor. And having no MFA and having been out of the country for 15 years, that was what allowed me to begin to build community in the poetry world in the States, and also to just get a sense of what was happening in poetry over here. You know, when you're out of the game, you don't really know what's, uh, how people are writing, what what uh, the trends are, I suppose. Although, you know, you, generally, you don't wanna follow trends necessarily, but whatever you write is going to be in conversation with whatever else is being written at that time. So it allowed me to join the conversation. So thank you for that, Brad. Well, sure. Yeah. I didn't know all that backstory, to be honest with you. And I'm curious to know how you wound up at Cambridge. I mean, it's an excellent school, but it's yeah. not the it's not the most typical path for a kid from Brooklyn to, to go yeah. across the pond and go to Cambridge. So what brought you there? That's true. Well, you know, I went to a prep school, essentially, that was uh, that was arts oriented. And what was uh, it? it was what was it called? St. Anne's. Oh, yeah. Right. I've heard. I've, yeah, had multi- you, I've had multiple guests on this show that went to St. Anne's. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, yeah. Produces a lot of writers for sure. So you know, it's a pretty hoity-toity school, and uh, you know, they they knew about Cambridge and Oxford, but also, you know, what the reason why I decided to apply, and the you know reason why I had the idea in the first place was that my parents were close friends with a gay couple. Alan and David, when I was growing up. And, you know, they were that sort of boomer generation of, you know, buttoned up and very proper, you know, gay men who liked the nicer things in life, you know. So my Uncle David, I used to call him, you know, Uncle David, they both passed, sadly, but um, Uncle David was a PR man. And Uncle Alan was a painter. And uh, he was a professor in the art department at the college, at the um, 
a community college where my dad was a lab technician. So that's how they met. And my mother was running an art supply store in Brooklyn. So, you know, she became really close friends with Alan. And then, you know, as couples, they became friends with each other. And I was the child in their life. So they were very well traveled. They went to Europe every year, sometimes twice a year. So, you know, they thought from the time that I was very little, that I was very verbal, that I was, you know, very um, interested in writing. They knew all about that. So they suggested that I perhaps consider going to college abroad and specifically in the UK. So that's, that's what gave me the, the seed that, uh, you know, then became my higher education. That's great. That's, I mean, that sounds like a fabulous experience. I'm sure you probably, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I can imagine you probably look back fondly on it and that's like, you could do worse, you know, in terms of making choices. Yeah, undergrad, certainly, you know, it had a kind of Hogwarts feel, certainly. But <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think for me coming from Brooklyn, as you know, a young woman of color, there was a lot on me, right. And uh, particularly coming from a working class background in a school that was primarily white and primarily far more, far more wealthy than my family was. There, there was a lot of baggage. But for the first time in my life at Cambridge, the slate was wiped clean. I was just the American girl for the first time. And I think that afforded me a lot of freedom to explore who I really was, you know, my, my identity and my uh, artistic identity. I did a lot of theater, as I said, and that was uh, something that I hadn't tried before, but, you know, realized that I had a certain facility with and uh, found joy in. So it was, it was a great experience undergrad and a postgraduate I think a lot of people run into this where they, you know, see behind the curtain of the administration a little bit more and you see all the uh, politics and bitchery that happens back there. So that that kind of turned me off a bit. And it's Bitcher a more isolated bitchery. experience. Bitchery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I think there's a lot of lessons embedded in what you've just been saying, you know, going all the way back to when you met this agent. And like you said, treated him like a professor rather than a mm. business partner, and then internalized his treatment of you as shame, essentially, yeah. and like yeah. a personal failing, and how that stifled you creatively for a long time. And that I'm sure you look back upon with some regret, right? To, to let that guy and that experience cause this to happen. Um, I'm sure you probably think like, wow, I wish I would have just moved on more quickly, right? To the next Sure. Day. I mean, for a long time, I thought, you know, after I got back into writing, I, I sort of whipped myself as one does and um, thought, you know, I should have just gotten back on the horse. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to persist and keep going. But, you know, in in retrospect, I don't actually regret my time studying sociology because I think that comes into my work, my creative work, you yeah. know, that the, the lens um, that I view the world with is very much uh, rooted in ideas that I picked up as a sociologist and that I think are very, impor very important, you know, reflexivity, the idea that words make worlds and the idea of um, making the familiar strange. Right. Like um, you, you take you take a received notion and you turn it around and examine it as if it were something crazy. Right. 
yeah, so I, I don't think it was a waste actually, because I wouldn't have the voice as a writer that I have now had I not had this kind of circuitous meandering route. But, you know, you're back now in a creative mode. I mean, it, you've kind of shifted gears and have sort of shed the weight of whatever that first agent, uh, you know, caused or led you to. And now you're back to writing regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know what the industry is like. It's it's a really tough place, right? And another thing that I suppose I don't regret now is having gone back into it with greater maturity. You know, I I was 22, I was a kid back then, and when I you know, went on my second rodeo uh, around, you know, finding an agent, I was in my mid 40s. So, I'd, you know, lived enough life to develop not necessarily a thicker skin, but a greater sense of what my needs are, what my deal breakers are, how I work as a writer and, you know, what I need in terms of feedback and creative communication and editorial communication. So, you know, I think I was armed with a lot better tools this time around that I wouldn't have gotten without time. Right. So... Are you working on another project? Yeah, I do. It's uh, completely different. It's not a period piece. It's contemporary and it's satirical comedy and oh. it's called MILF. Oh, okay. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a family drama that's set during the pandemic, but you know, it skewers everything from academia to marriage to, you know, certain artistic echelons of New York City and upstate New York where I now live. So yeah, I'm working is it on that. Fun, trying fun to-, to work? I mean, shifting gears, because this is, I mean, King of the Armadillos does have its moments of levity, but it's, I wouldn't classify it as a comedic work or a satire, you know? So it's fun to shift gears. That's, pre- that's a pretty big shift in gears. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a surprise, I guess, to some people that I have a sense of humor, but I do. (laughs) And that, and that sense of humor is pretty filthy. So I get to, you know, let that rip (laughs) here in this book. It's irreverent and uh, erudite to a degree, but also raunchy. So (laughs) that's, that's really fun. Well, it's been fun talking with you and congratulations on King of the Armadillos. And thank you for writing this book because as strange as it may sound it is like uh, it illuminates a part of my own personal history probably unexpectedly for you that you you know didn't i don't think you had any idea coming into this conversation <laughs> that i would have such close personal ties to this uh this part of the country and to this story but it's been a kind of mystery to me too and this is the most i've ever been able to see inside that place so I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. I mean, you certainly blew my mind, but you know. It... <laughs> <laughs> I thought about I thought about telling you like before, but I was like, no, I'll just wait until you know we're kind of in conversation, and I'll drop the news. And it's a small <laughs> world, so thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Wendy Chin Tanner. Her debut novel is called King of the Armadillos. It is available now from Flatiron Books. You can find Wendy on the internet at wendychintanner.com. Follow her on social media. She is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I believe. One more time, 
The book is called King of the Armadillos. It is out there. It is waiting for you. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. It is available wherever podcasts are available. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Go sign up for my newsletter over at Substack, bradlisty.substack.com. If you would like to join the Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review if that's possible. It helps the show find new listeners. You can also get other people apparel. Did you know that? A t-shirt or a sweatshirt? Check that out over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel entitled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds good, you can read my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, coming up on Wednesday on the Other People podcast, I will be in conversation with author Blake Butler. He has a new memoir out entitled Molly. It is about his late wife, Molly Brodak, a very harrowing and very beautiful read. The book is available from Archway Editions. I had a great conversation with Blake Butler. That is coming up on Wednesday, so stay tuned. 